Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Wednesday, September 22nd, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, sharing some reflections, some poetry, and a little historical context on what it is that makes fall strike such a strong chord with so many of us in honor of this first day of fall. And a look at NASA's upcoming Lucy mission to Jupiter's asteroids that somehow includes facts about the Beatles, Mexican track and field athlete Norma Enriqueta Basilio Sotelo and the Iliad. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Today is the first day of fall in the Northern Hemisphere. I'm not positive if fall is my favorite season, but I do think it's one of the most curious. Even though many of us are more disconnected with nature and seasons these days, whether due to technology, climate, or urban living, fall at its most pure is a kind of liminal space, a transitory buffer between the heat of summer and the chill of winter. Back in the day, or still in more agricultural settings, it was a time to prepare for a long, hard winter. The shortened days and dying leaves reminded people of their own mortality and of those they'd lost. But at the same time, it was a period of celebration, usually, for the harvest that had been sown through the spring and summer. Many cultures held feast days around this time of year, but one of the most notable, due to its strong association with what became Halloween, is the Celtic Festival of Samhain, which translates to Summer's End. And indeed, in one of its first textual mentions in a 10th century Gaelic text, it's described as, "...when the summer goes to rest." Historian Nicholas Rogers elaborates on Samhain in his book Halloween from Pagan Ritual to Party Night, quote, Paired with the Feast of Beltane, which celebrated the life-generating powers of the sun, Samhain beckoned to winter and the dark nights ahead. It was quintessentially an old pastoral and agricultural festival, wrote J.A. McCulloch which in time came to be looked upon as affording assistance to the powers of growth in their conflict with the powers of blight. The Feast of Samhain was the occasion of stock-taking and in-gathering, of reorganizing communities for the winter months, including the preparation of quarters for itinerant warriors and shamans. It was also a period of supernatural intensity, when the forces of darkness and decay were said to be abroad, spilling out from the Shi, the ancient mounds or barrows of the countryside." End quote. This association with the supernatural, or at least a fixation on mortality, is ubiquitous in cultures and art tied to this season. Think Dia de los Mertos for one. John Keats, one of the original emos, threaded this paradox of fall into his 1819 poem To Autumn, which begins with expressions of the bounty and joys of harvest, but ends with reflections on decay, on the lost promise of spring, and yet also with the cyclical pattern of nature. Here's the first and last stanzas of To Autumn. Season of mists and mellow fruitfulness, close bosom friend of the maturing sun, conspiring with him how to load and bless with fruit the vines that round the thatch eaves run, to bend with apples the mossed cottage trees, and fill all fruit with ripeness to the core, to swell the gourd and plump the hazel shells with a sweet kernel, to set budding more and still more later flowers for the bees until they think warm days will never cease, for summer has o'erbrimmed their clammy cells. Where are the songs of spring? Ay, where are they? Think not of them, thou hast thy music too, while barred clouds bloom the soft dying day, and touch the stubble plains with rosy hue. 
Then, in a wailful choir, the small gnats mourn among the river sallows, borne aloft or sinking as the light wind lives or dies, and full-grown lambs loud bleat from the hilly bourne, hedge crickets sing, and now, with treble soft, the red breast whistles from a garden croft, and gathering swallows twitter in the skies. Caitlin Kimball from the Poetry Foundation offers this analysis, quote, It's hard not to notice after a few readings that although the closing scene is imbued with a sense of mortality, Autumn's song sounds much like Spring's. After all, the birds and the lambs, although now full-grown, would have sung and bleated in May as well. The four distinct seasons, with all their sensuous variety, are one forward motion whose end is always death. We may rely on it and must rely on it. The harvest is our means of surviving the cold that follows. End quote. The seasons are one forward motion whose end is always death. Notably, this poem was the last one that Keats fully completed before dying of tuberculosis 18 months later. As Kimball says, the period of time in which he wrote to Autumn, quote, would be the poet's own Autumn. End quote. Although more often in literature, the autumn of a person's life refers to middle age. Gwendolyn Brooks's A Sunset of the City is a great example of this. Here's part of that poem, quote, Already I am no longer looked at with lechery or love. My daughters and sons have put me away with marbles and dolls, are gone from the house. My husband and lovers are pleasant or somewhat polite, and night is night. It is a real chill-out, the genuine thing. I am not devastated. I do not think it is still summer because the sun stays and birds continue to sing. It is summer gone that I see. It is summer gone. The sweet flowers in drying and dying down. The grasses forgetting their blaze and consenting to brown. End quote. And even Shakespeare uses autumn as a metaphor for middle age in his Sonnet 73 when he addresses the fair youth, who is the subject of many of his sonnets, and reflects on how the young man must perceive himself, Shakespeare, who is so much older. Quote, That time of year thou mayst in me behold, when yellow leaves, or none, or few, do hang upon those boughs which shake against the cold, bare-ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang. In me thou seest the twilight of such day as after sunset fadeth in the west, which by and by black night doth take away death's second self that seals up all in rest. But this time of year doesn't have to be all about the approach of death, the approach of the darkness of winter. Over at Brain Pickings, Maria Popova references the French writer and performer Colette, who preferred to think of fall as a beginning, which I think makes sense for anyone who typically started a new school year in the fall. Popova also cites poet and wildlife biologist J. Drew Lanham, who describes how animals and nature express this time as one of change. Quoting from his book The Home Place, Memoirs of a Colored Man's Love Affair with Nature, The Germans have a fine word for it, Zugunruhe, a compound derived from the roots Zug, migration, and Unruhe, anxiety. It describes the seasonal migration of birds and other animals. In this wanderlust, I want to go somewhere far away, to fly to some place I think I need to be. Nature is on the move too, migrating, storing, and dying. Everything is either accelerating or slowing down. Some things are rushing about to put in seed for the next generation. A monarch butterfly in a field full of goldenrod is urgent on tissue-thin wings of black and orange to gather the surging sweetness before the frost locks it away. 
Apple trees and tangles of muscadines hang heavy. The fruit-dense orchards offer a final call to the wildlings. Foxes, deer, coons, possum, and wild turkeys fatten in the feasting. The air is spiced with the scent of dying leaves. The perfume of decay gathers as berries ripen into wild wine. Even the sun sits differently in an autumnal sky, sending a mellower light in somber slants that foretell the coming change. Especially in nature, and in locations with a distinct change of weather, that sense of transformation is palpable in the air. It's no wonder it's inspired so many works of art and deeply held traditions all around the world throughout the centuries. I'll leave you with one more quote that Popova shared, again from Lanham. Fall is the time when nature speaks most clearly to me. In autumn, one is treated to an orgy of sights, sounds, and smells that can be wonderfully overwhelming. The stifling late summer heat is mercifully cleared by cooler air overnight. Breathing is suddenly easier, and the soaking sweat evaporates. You want to inhale deeply enough to take in every molecule wafting on the wind. The tired sameness of September's deep green fades, then flames into October's vermilion sumacs and scarlet maples, lemon-yellow poplars and golden hickories. In those days of crispness, I want to linger long enough to hear every sound and look far enough to see into forever. End quote. Next month, NASA is launching a spacecraft all the way out to Jupiter's orbit, becoming the first ever to explore the planet's Trojan asteroids. And Phil Plate in his Bad Astronomy column over at Sci-Fi recently outlined why this mission is so unique and so spectacular. The spacecraft, named Lucy, is solar-powered and will be about 14 meters or 46 feet long and weigh 1,550 kilograms or 3,400 pounds. And again, Lucy won't be touching down on Jupiter or anything like that, just hanging out in its orbit in order to explore the scientific history of those asteroids. Quoting Bad Astronomy, Due to a quirk of orbital physics, when something like a planet orbits a star, there are several points along and near that orbit where there are gravitational stable spots. If you place an object there, it will orbit the star stably as well. These are called Lagrange points and are pretty useful for space missions. James Webb Space Telescope, due to launch in December, will orbit around the sun near one of Earth's Lagrange points. Jupiter is a big planet with powerful gravity, so its Lagrange points are very stable. Asteroids that wander in there will tend to stay there. One of these points, called L4, is 60 degrees ahead of Jupiter in its orbit, and another, called L5, is 60 degrees behind. A lot of asteroids cluster in those points. The first few discovered were named after figures in the myth of the Trojan War, so they're nicknamed the Trojan Asteroids, and these two stable spots in particular, the Trojan Points. By tradition, the ones in the L4 point are named after Greek figures from the war and those in L5 after Trojans, end quote. Although, while researching this piece, Plate discovered a cool little fact. There are over 10,000 asteroids that have been discovered in this cluster so far, so despite their fun Greek and Trojan naming scheme, scientists eventually ran out of names they could pull from the Iliad. Though, in a testament to just how dense that book is, it took them over a hundred years to run out of names. In any case, rather than digging deeper into Greek history, the International Astronomical Union announced last year that subsequent asteroids in this cluster would be named after Olympic and Paralympic athletes. 
The very first one was named Keta after Mexican track and field athlete Norma Enriqueta Keta Basilio Sotelo, the very first woman to light the Olympic cauldron back in 1968. Keith Knoll, Lucy's project scientist and vice chair of the IAU's working group for small bodies nomenclature, says they are committed to choosing a diverse array of athletes from around the world and not just medal winners. And on the note of naming, you may be wondering why this spacecraft and mission is named Lucy. Is it because, like the football that Lucy holds up that Charlie Brown can never manage to make contact with, this spacecraft will never be making contact with Jupiter itself? Given the Apollo program's affinity for Snoopy, it's a fair guess. Alas, no. But the reason is actually pretty cool still. This Lucy is named after Lucy the Australopithecus afarensis, whose partial skeleton became famous around the world after being discovered in 1974. Those fossils were named Lucy because the Beatles song Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds was playing non-stop at the excavation site the evening they discovered it. This mission to Jupiter's Trojan asteroids is named after Lucy the Hominin because the hope is that the mission will find indicators of how the planets formed, essentially fossils giving us an idea of the formation of the solar system. Plate points out that these asteroids are thought to have been there for a long time, possibly going all the way back to the beginning of the solar system. And since they cluster together in those Lagrange points, you can get a lot of bang for your buck when visiting them. But the most wild thing about the Lucy mission, according to Plate, is the route that it will be taking. Here's Plate explaining it, quote, It launches on an Atlas V rocket from Florida. It'll go into a high loop around the Earth, then, some months later, drop back down toward our planet and use a gravity assist to boost it into an even higher loop that'll take it out a bit past the orbit of Mars. Then, it falls back to Earth a second time to get another boost. This will fling it through the main asteroid belt where it has its first science encounter with a four-kilometer asteroid called Donald Johansson, named after one of the co-discoverers of the Lucy skeleton. Lucy, the spacecraft, will then continue through the asteroid belt on a curving ellipse that peaks right at the orbit of Jupiter, timed perfectly such that it encounters Jupiter's L4 asteroids. Then it will drop back down through the asteroid belt and back to Earth's orbit, swing around and head back out to Jupiter's orbit again. Enough time will have passed that this time, when it gets there, it will encounter an asteroid in Jupiter's L5 points. End quote. And after all of that, Lucy will do it again, and again and again for as long as the spacecraft can keep it up and as long as NASA continues to approve the project. Lucy will repeat that whole process every six years. It's such a detailed and fascinating path that there's already an interactive website called whereislucy.space where you'll be able to follow along once the spacecraft is launched and where you can use sliders to look ahead to the future now and get an understanding of the mission's path. Lucy is supposed to launch on October 16th, but there's a 23-day launch window starting on the 16th, so it could be any time in the subsequent weeks. Of course, if you miss it, there will be plenty to follow on Lucy's travels over the coming years. So, Netflix has apparently bought Raw Dahl's entire catalog of works. I think Jason put it best when he shared this news on Kotki.org today, quote, Netflix plans to combat Disney, Marvel, Star Wars, Pixar, with, checks notes, the Raw Dahl Cinematic Universe, end quote. I mean, yeah, it definitely isn't going to give them a foothold in children's entertainment compared to Disney, even if Dahl did write several now classics like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Matilda, and the BFG. 
Quoting the Associated Press, the video streaming giant said Wednesday that it acquired the Raw Doll Story Company, which manages the rights to the author's characters and stories. No financial terms were disclosed. The deal builds on a partnership struck in 2018 to create a slate of animated TV series, under which Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is getting a reboot by Academy Award-winning filmmaker Taika Waititi, and Netflix is working with Sony on an adaptation of Matilda the Musical. The new deal paves the way for Netflix to bring all of the author's back catalog to the screens, end quote. I'll be curious to see how Netflix handles newer adaptations. You know, as much as they were among my favorite books growing up, I have to admit there are a number of story elements in Dahl's novels that are not really okay. The Oompa Loompas stand out as the most egregious example of happy slaves and gross stereotyping. Though, if I trust any big-name director right now to create an adaptation of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory that's not insensitive to indigenous people, it would be Taika Waititi, so I'm cautiously optimistic about that. Then there's also Dahl's string of anti-Semitic comments, which his family, he passed away in 1990, issued a formal apology for last year. Although, notably, that was after they'd already signed the first deal with Netflix, and they got a bit of flack for that. And I bring all that up because I'm personally conflicted about Raw Dahl, and because I'm curious to see how Netflix, probably one of the streaming platforms most concerned with trying to appear progressive on their social media and in their original content, will approach these issues. But hey, maybe, just maybe, we will finally get a feature film adaptation of Charlie and the Great Glass Elevator, with some heavy editing. But that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.